Good morning. Hey, the sun came up. Hey, we want to keep praying. I believe in uh, April showers. And let's keep praying for rain. And we will, week to week. Maybe even through the summer. Who knows? Maybe we'll really get a miracle. It's good to see you this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm always excited. Um, I'm always energized and eager to, uh, to speak by the time I get together with you. Uh, this morning, I'm even a little more eager. And yeah, it's a, it's a somber, solemn kind of subject. But there's something that we're going to see here that can literally change your life. So I hope you'll give me as much attention as you can possibly give me for the next few minutes as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'd like to read it, all 13 verses, starting with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do, what have I to do 
with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I told you it was kind of sobering. But now I want to ask you an important question. What does pride, what does pride have to do with right and wrong? The study of right and wrong we call ethics. The knowledge, the knowledge of right and wrong we call morality. You can study right and wrong. You can even know what is right and what is wrong. But pride, pride will determine what you do too often, too frequently. And that is what pride has to do with right and wrong. I'm sure every person in this room is aware because you have read in the newspapers or seen on the news, on television, you are aware of Sigma Alpha Epsilon, the University of Oklahoma fraternity that was shut down, closed. Every one of the fraternity members asked to move out. Two of the fraternity members were expelled from Oklahoma University. And why? For chanting a fraternity song, a, fr a Sigma Alpha Epsilon song, chanting a fraternity song with lyrics about lynching other people. Lynching other fellow Americans, lynching African-Americans, and lyrics stating that they didn't want them as a part of their fraternity. Tuesday on ABC News, I saw the interview with Matt Lopez. Now that name may not ring a bell, but Matt Lopez is the former dorm mate of Parker Rice. And Parker Rice was seen on a video with the whole fraternity on a bus leading the chant, which got him expelled and got the entire fraternity kicked off campus. And this is what Matt Lopez had to say about Parker Rice. I know Parker. He's not racist. He's really not. Unfortunately, he compromised his morality for the liking of his friends, for the tradition, and for the pursuit of the favors of his fellow fraternity members. Unfortunately, he compromised his morality, his knowledge of right and wrong, 
He compromised. He bent what he knew to be right and wrong. He changed in his head what was right and wrong. He was no longer subject or subordinate to what is right and wrong. He compromised what is right and wrong for the liking that he wanted from his friends. He wanted to be liked. He wanted to be a part of the tradition of Sigma Alpha Epsilon. He wanted the favors and the prestige of being a member of Sigma Alpha Epsilon. And to be a member and have the prestige He changed the rules of right and wrong for himself. And that is pride. Pride caused him to change the rules of right and wrong, to say they don't apply. George Stephanopoulos, many of you know George Stephanopoulos. You've seen him on ABC Nightly News or Good Morning America. Some of you know him for the fact that he gained recognition as a leader, a leading member of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign and helped get Bill Clinton elected as our president. He then served in the White House as a de facto press secretary. After leaving the White House, George Stephanopoulos wrote a book called All Too Human. It became a New York Times bestseller. Critics of the book wondered why George Stephanopoulos had turned on the man, the president, who made him a national figure. Charles Colson, some of you know the name Charles Colson. Charles Colson, former aide of President Nixon, who turned to Jesus Christ when he was in prison, indicted as a criminal for Watergate crimes. After he got out of prison, he began a prison ministry. Started a ministry called Breakpoint. And when the book by George Stephanopoulos came out, the former aide of a president, Charles Colson, read the book of George Stephanopoulos, a former aide to the president, a different president. He asks this question. He thinks it's the question that is the most important one in the book that George Stephanopoulos wrote. Why do smart, well-intentioned people compromise their ethics? Why do smart, well-intentioned people compromise their ethics? 
wrote about the book that George Stephanopoulos wrote, Stephanopoulos had a strong sense of right and wrong. For starters, his grandfather, father, uncle, godfather were all Greek Orthodox priests. What's more, as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, Stephanopoulos studied Christian ethics, right and wrong. As Stephanopoulos puts it, I read Augustine and Aquinas, Martin Luther and Reinhold Niebuhr, analyzing the fundamental questions of politics from the fundamental perspective of what was right rather than what would work. Stephanopoulos admitted that he was aware of scandals as early as 1992 that gave him doubts about Clinton the man from the beginning. Yet despite the scandals, Stephanopoulos stayed with Clinton and didn't challenge him. Why not? He says it was because he believed that Clinton's vision for the country outweighed his character flaws. That the good effects of Clinton's policies would outweigh any harm done by his personal faults. Colson said on that very issue, it's a rationalization I know all too well. In the midst of Watergate, I overlooked a lot of what I knew to be wrong in the White House because, like Stephanopoulos, I thought that it was vital for America to have my president in the White House to end the Vietnam War, to save us from the Democrats. Democrats. My, he says, how we can justify. And then Colson wrote this. Stephanopoulos and I shared another more insidious characteristic when we worked in the White House. Pride. He went on to illustrate from Stephanopoulos' book and from his own life how pride entered in to strife with other people, envy, anger, subterfuge, all kinds of things. And then he wrote this, in both our cases, in other words, it's not a Democrat or Republican or presidency thing. Our desire to do what was right was at war with our love of fame and the spotlight. C.S. Lewis is right to call pride the great sin, end quote. Here's the thing. Everyone, everyone struggles with pride. It's rooted in the idolatry of the heart. Jeremiah 17.9 speaks about the insidious evil perpetrated in the heart. But it's the idolatry of the heart that causes us to rival, even to rival God. Pride 
is a dangerous poison. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, when I handed him the keys to my life, I discovered pride in all the wrong places. And I'll tell you, when the presence of God is in your life, you become aware of pride in a way that I did not even appreciate it before. And the presence of God exposed a cussed self in me that I had to face but didn't want to. And that cussed self sang a fraternity song, my own little fraternity song. It was a little ditty, and its lyrics, its favorite refrain was, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's not about you. It's all about me. Funny how a song like that can get stuck in your head, and it seems like the more you try not to sing it, the more you just can't shake that tune. It gets louder. But then I discovered something about pride, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. And it really unlocks everything in this passage, because you might to yourself be thinking, what does pride have to do with what we read in chapter 5? I think it'll become clear to you. But I want to share with you something that's very important. It's a little hard to put into just an expression, so I just want to say it this way. I used to wrestle with trying to get rid of the pride, and it seemed like the more I tried to get rid of the pride, then I tried to be humble. And the more I tried to be humble, the more I realized that my pride was just kind of flourishing in my humility. And the way I really began to overcome and get the proper victory of pride, not by trying to be, you know, oh, put myself down and, hey, don't, don't say anything nice to me. And no, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. And I mean, just all kinds of crazy. It was a, and the more I did that, the more I, I was realizing it's all about me. But the way I got the victory was this. I started focusing on God's love. And really, it's, it's the most prominent doctrine of the New Testament. It's the most important doctrine of, of Scripture. God showed us this love. It embraces every law. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills all the law and the prophets. <clears throat> but here's what you need to keep in view. I've always defined the word agape based on my experience and study as seeking God's best for another. Seeking God's best. Not their best, not my best, God's best. But here's something else you have to understand. Contained within love is kindness, goodness, and truth. Love cannot and will e never violate goodness and truth. And goodness and truth will always serve the interests of love. You cannot love and sin. It just is impossible. So as I gave myself to love, 
I was also giving myself to doing what is right and not what is wrong. Are you following me? And the more I did what was right and not what was wrong, there was no pride. Pride got out of the way. Pride shriveled up, dried up, went away, skulked away. And I didn't think I was humble, but then all of a sudden, to my surprise, every once in a while, somebody said, you're a humble person. And that was not what I set out to be at all. I just set out to love as God in Christ loved me, to do what's right and not what's wrong. Well, what does pride have to do with that? Well, that's what I want you to understand because that's the catch in this marvelous secret to life. The catch is to love like that, to do what's right, not what's wrong. You've got to swallow your pride. You've got to swallow your pride. And that's what really is at the center of what everything that Paul is talking about in chapter 5. In fact, pride is the one poison that heals you if you swallow it. Think about that. Pride is the one poison, because it is poison. It will poison you in ways you don't even fully appreciate. And it will poison others. It is a contaminant. But if you swallow it, if you swallow your pride... It'll bring healing to you and others. What does it mean to swallow your pride? Well, it means to do the right thing. Pride inhibits us from doing the right thing. Swallow your pride and tell your sister you're sorry. Well, I don't want to tell my sister I'm sorry. Why? Why wouldn't you want to tell your sister you're sorry? Well... Because I don't think I'm wrong. She's wrong and I'm not. Or, I don't know, it's hard to say you're wrong when you want to be right, but you know you're wrong. Or, it, you know, it's hard to say you're sorry to your sister when you're worried about being embarrassed. Or if she's then going to say, yeah, yeah, I told you so. But is it the right thing to do? Did you do wrong? Do you need to apologize for it? Do you need to say, you know what? I am sorry. What I did was wrong. It hurt you. And I shouldn't have hurt you. Why don't you want to do that? Pride. That's why I can say with great confidence and personal experience, and I'll bet there's a witness of the Spirit in your own life. I'll bet, yeah, I can see you looking somber, but you agree. You realize what I'm saying is true. It is the only poison that if you swallow it, it'll heal you because it'll free you to do what you ought to be doing. It'll free you not only to do what's right, it'll free you to do what's right more often. Because how often do we shrink back from facing what is wrong? Facing it down. Because of pride. I want to go along. 
I'm willing to compromise. I'm, I'm willing to compromise what I support on Sunday on Monday. Because it serves what's, what I think is best for me. I think it will get me where I want to go. Get me the friends that I want. It doesn't matter who I hurt or what I become, come to stand for, whether I stand for something that's wrong. But you know what? It's good for me. It's good for what I think is best for me. That is pride. That is idolatry. That is not faith. You see, when you swallow your pride, that is an act of faith, especially when you do it to follow Jesus. Jesus says, love that person. Help that person. Give to that person. Get rid of that attitude. And why don't we? Because I am in competition with Jesus. It's just as simple and plain as that. It's kind of stark, isn't it? It's just so in our faces. But that is the nature of pride. It doesn't name itself. It skulks along. It gets in there, and it just takes up residence in our life in such a way that we get comfortable with it. Swallow your pride. Otherwise, it poisons our judgment. And that's what we see in the opening verses. In fact, Paul says he makes the connection between pride. He uses the word arrogance in the ESV translation. Yours might say puffed up. These are just synonyms. They're other words for pride. He says... I can't believe that this is happening. This ongoing relationship you are complacent about. He says, you're puffed up. You're full of pride. You're arrogant. And you should be mourning. You should be grieving. Your judgment has been compromised by pride by arrogance, by what you think is best for you and not whether it's right or it's wrong. There's a lot that's really fascinating about this that contributes to our understanding of this situation and the impact upon the Corinthian church to understand Corinthian society, Roman society as a colony of Rome, understanding Roman law in the eyes of Roman law, especially after Augustus, who wanted to bring a new level of right and wrong and morality to the empire, to his people. He was, in fact, attacking this very kind of thing that was going on. And now there were laws on the books that were very tough on adultery and incest, a double indemnity in a way. I mean, this was like a dual problem, and they treated it very, very harshly. In fact, if you were proven guilty of this charge, you became exiled either to an island 
but definitely outside of the city, persona non grata. In fact, it says in verse 1, a man has his father's wife, which expressly, very clear in the Greek language, says this is an ongoing sexual relationship, and it is with his father's wife, which is his stepmother. She may be roughly the same age, a very young wife to his older father. But it's still on the books as an incestual relationship and adultery. The father, under Roman law, has two months, 60 days, to file for divorce and bring charges on incest that cannot be brought from one citizen to another. But there are many complications because there were limits on private to private citizen or person to person court cases based on rank, status, title. It's very possible that the father may have married the woman for her dowry, for her prestige. She may have been of higher class. All kinds of complications that we can't pin down. But one thing we know is Paul says you have to address the behavior of the man. Why the man? Why not the woman? Why not the father? Because the man is in the church. He is a Christian. Here's the best way I can illustrate it. Imagine the man is a city council member from a prestigious or prominent family. In fact, a family with a, a name that has become something of a brand name in Tulare County, known for its properties and local businesses. As a civic leader, he's named in newspapers, interviewed on local TV. It's a point of pride to have him visit the church. And then he receives Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, becomes a member of the church. But moreover, because he's a member of the church, it's a point of pride, not only to him, but to us. We kind of rise with him in prominence. People say, hey, that guy goes to Grace Community Church. Pretty cool. A man of, with that name, that prominence. But moreover, the man with his many connections employs people who are out of work. Rents to people who need affordable housing. Even donates a million dollars to a project that the whole church is committed to. So then what happens when all of these connections are at risk because it's told that the man is having sexual relations with his father's wife? How does the church respond? Paul says in the Corinthian situation, he says, you're arrogant. You're letting all of these connections, these prideful connections, these things that have to do with me, 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 affect what's right and wrong. Pride poisons our desire to do the right thing. 
And so Paul says, here's what I want you to do in verses three through five. He says, in the name and power of the Lord, all of you, with me there in the presence of the Holy Spirit, I want you to turn him over to Satan. And the visual picture is quite poignant. It's as though Satan is going to come here and gathered together, we're going to hand him into the custody. Like a policeman, Satan is going to pull out his handcuffs, put his hands behind his back, and lead him away in the prison of Satan's oversight and control. Well, that's really sobering. But it's a sobering issue because Paul brings this up, this issue of exile, which is going to take place under Roman law eventually. There are reasons as to maybe why that hasn't already kicked in. But that is going to happen, most likely. And Paul says, are you kidding me? You're going to let pagan society show you What's right and wrong? So he says, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to gather together and we're going to turn that person over to Satan. In verse 2, 5, 7, and 13, Paul emphasizes this, this theme of turning over, giving over into custody, or putting out or removing and he sums it up in verse 13 with Deuteronomy 17.7 Deuteronomy because Paul's not following Roman law. Paul's following God's law. And God says that's the remedy. But listen, I want you to appreciate this. It's very explicit. This is not punitive. This is redemptive. In fact, this is what God did to Job. When Satan came to him and said, look, look at Job. He loves you, serves you, follows your law to the letter. He does exactly what you ask him to do. But he does it because you've given him everything. You take that from him and he'll curse you. And God says, that's not true. He says, you'll never know it until you take it all away. Then you'll see the real motives of his heart. You'll see if it's just pride. But that's what God does in the book of Job. He gives Job into custody to teach Job something about himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul himself is given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, he says, to, har to harass me. And what is it that needs to be harassed out of Paul's life or kept from Paul? This is what Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited. That's not a word we use very often, but when I was in High school, that was just the worst thing that could be said about you. You're conceited. In other words, you're full of yourself. You're full of pride. You're like a peacock. You're so full of yourself. You think you're just the living in. 
You're conceited. And Paul says, so I've been given a thorn in the flesh, a, a messenger of Satan. This isn't to kill this man. This is redemptive, not punitive. It is to teach him something he desperately needs to learn. And just as with Job, Job says, you can touch anything that I've given him, but you're not going to touch his life. And in the same way, it's, this is an issue, just as we saw between the spiritual and the fleshly, this is to have a redemptive role in destroying the fleshly stance of his self-sufficiency, his pride. If we won't swallow pride and do what's right in the Lord, if he won't swallow his pride and do what's right in the Lord, give him over. Now the good news is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul writes to the same Corinthians. They followed through. And he was put out. And you know what he found outside of the church? It's cold out there. And he wanted back. He repented and came home. And you know what the Corinthians were doing? They were not going to let him in. So Paul has to write him and say, come on, you're driving me nuts. Forgive him. Forgive him. Bring him home. This is where he belongs. And we have to do the same thing. They had to swallow their pride and put him out. They had to swallow their pride and forgive him. But healing comes when we swallow our pride. It not only poisons our judgment, it poisons our church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When I was uh, growing up, every Saturday I would, if, if, it was a, if grandma was in the mood, I always wanted to bake with grandma. And most Saturdays we baked together, a cake or something for dinner was at lunchtime. And when she would bake a cake, well, now they have leaven in it, but I can remember her having leaven to add to dough that she would need. Well, leaven is bought at the grocery store. It's antiseptic, but that yeast is not the same as leaven in antiquity. In this time, when Paul talks of leaven, leaven would be a little bit of dough that would be kept aside from the previous week's baking, and it would ferment. But sometimes that, that leaven that's fermented could also contain contagions and transfer sickness. It was not real, what's the word I want? You know, uh, hygienic. And so when they would mix it into the fresh dough, it would transfer any contagions that had come. And of course their bodies build up immunities, but sometimes... It would be a source of real sickness. It's that part of it that Paul is saying, listen, when you mix that leaven in with unleavened dough, fresh dough, it's, it's poisoning things. He says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. In our lives, there is leaven that's tainted. And, and it brings a puffing up, but it's not good. And it's affecting the transparency of our walk and the reality, the genuineness of our walk with Christ. 
And so Paul says, get rid of that leaven. In fact, I want you to notice in verse 8, there are lots of reasons, but here's just another reason that all of chapter 5 is dealing with the same issue. Because when he says, we're going to celebrate the feast, not with the leaven of vice, and iniquity. That word that in some translations, even this one is translated malice, it has, it is often translated and understood in context of vice. And so he's carrying through that same theme. We are not going to celebrate with the leaven of vice and iniquity, but with unleavened dough of purity and truth. Verse 8. He says, your boasting is not good because in the church, this pride is infecting everybody. You know, pride poisons my judgment, poisons your judgment, poisons the judgment of others. And we don't name pride. I, you know, like in a meeting, I don't come in and say, um, I'm a prideful Christian, so the, the decisions that I'm suggesting and the things that I'm arguing for, I just want you to know they're really coming out of a place of pride. We don't do that. We don't do that. Because we're always in that struggle, and, and I hope we're always getting the victory. But now I want you to appreciate the fact that when you don't do what's right or wrong, you can pin it. You can pinpoint the problem. It's pride, and you're not trusting the Lord. Your pride has gotten in the way of his role in your life at that point. And that should be an encouraging thing for us to realize. Because if we will live by faith and start to do that right thing, even if it's something like apologizing to your sister, you're going to see healing in your life and in your relationships. And you're going to see it in this church too. And see it across this land. It'll make a big difference because you'll be speaking truth. You'll be speaking courtesy. You'll be speaking unity. You'll be speaking love. And you'll be doing the things that support that. And if you aren't, you know why you won't? Because it's all about me, that little ditty that I realized I was singing all the time when Jesus came into my life. You know what else can happen with pride? We prejudge. Have you ever heard the word prejudice? It's just a, a trill of the word prejudge. Prejudice is when I have prejudged you without any evidence. So I just take a look at you, and I've got you figured out. Sure, I take one look at you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not worth my time. You're not of interest. You're not worth, how about if I said pastor, I just take a look at you, and I think, no, that person does there's no place for them in Christ, or I'm not going to treat them like I would this, uh, this high-profile person over here, or this person over here that likes everything I like. That is not the way I operate. That's not the way the gospel operates. You are important, and you are important, and every one of you are equally important, and I will give my all to you if you need it, not because of prejudging or pride, but because of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, isn't that kind of a mechanical thing? You know, he makes you do that. He makes you do what's right. Oh, no, no, no. 
He changes your heart. When you follow Jesus Christ, you grow and you start to see spiritual truths and realities. And you're not taken with all the tinsel and shine of this cruddy old world. And you start to see the power of the Christian life, the power of Christ in the Christian life, and the power of his church when people as a community start manifesting these truths in the way they treat one another. Get out at the gossip. Get out the prejudging. Get out the backbiting. Lock arm in arm. And start living for Christ. Stick up for one another. I am tired. This is just an aside. I've got to quit here. But I'm tired of people telling me about other people. And I say to them, you don't know that person the way I know them. If that is true, I have no evidence of that. And I think we have to be careful how we talk. And you do too. If you're a victim of the last voice you hear, you're not looking at the evidence. You're not standing for what's right and wrong. You're not standing for love. You're not sticking up for people without a trial. And that's wrong. And when people do that constantly, that's what Paul says affects our friendships. Pride poisons our friendships. He's talking about characteristic habitual kinds of behavior when he talks about being buddies with people who are described as immoral, greedy, swindlers, practitioners of idolatry, slanderers. That's what I was just talking about, slanderers. People who just seem to get a little ego kick out of putting other people down. Do you hang, are your best friends forever? with people who are constantly finding fault and putting other people down? Those are not best friends. They're just looking for you to applaud the fact that they think they're better. Better than everybody. Those should not be best friends forever. And if you're BFF with sin then you're going to end up looking like some of these people, which I wish I had the time to talk more about. Get the tape from the first service. Paul ends by saying, look, don't judge outsiders. Let God take care of them. Don't judge them. Don't expect people outside of Jesus Christ to act like those inside the church has become extremely comfortable, pridefully comfortable, that the law, the legislation of the land is going to take care of what's right and wrong. So we take, we take great pride. Look at me because when I look out there at those people, they don't have Christ in their lives. They don't have the pumping power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They don't have the love of Jesus Christ coursing through their veins because we know that love. To them, it's just rumor. So, let's quit judging them. Let's look in the mirror. 
Let's start judging ourselves, not as though you're worse than me, but brothers and sisters, let's start living for Christ here. We got something by the tail that can change this world. Now I'm going to pray. Let's stand up. (laughs) Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Let that goodness take over. Let that goodness break out. And don't let our pride, that poison, get in the way. And if it does, Father, we'll swallow it. For swallowing that will free us to live for you through faith in new and greater ways and trust in who you are. We love you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.